Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Lewis Miller. The mission of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics is to enhance your physical and mental well-being and encourage community. I say encourage community because I think living in community is the healthiest and most effective and richest way for us humans to live. Before I bring on my most distinguished guest today, Dr. To Maria Vittoria Mangini, I want to put the interview in context for you because this is a very important interview. Going back about mm, almost more than 15 years, I started doing what became the longest series on psychedelic medicine that had ever been broadcast in this country. I did that while I was still on a national public radio affiliate, uh, KZYX. And out of that, I believe came a contribution to the present renaissance in psychedelic medicine. And out of that also came a real platform for the historic uh, research done by Dr. Roland Griffiths at Johns Hopkins, because we had him on right after he did that, what became very famous psilocybin study. From those interviews came a couple of books, Psychedelic Medicine, Psychedelic Wisdom, and more that are coming down the pike, including uh, one that's coming out very soon called uh, a Psychedelic Medicine, End-of-Life Transitions. Now, what we're doing now is a series on psychedelic medicine's adverse effects. And what's the reason for that? And this is the reason that Maria Vittoria, Dr. Maria Vittoria Mangini is here today. Why are we now doing a series on adverse effects of psychedelics, and why will that be published as a book? Here's the reason. It's always bothered me that big pharma does everything they can to hide their negative results from the public. I think that is reprehensible. They sanitize their negative results. Let me give you an example. Big pharma calls their negative results side effects. But they're not side effects. Side effects sounds like something trivial that happens on the side. But the adverse effects of many medicines, they don't happen on our sides. They happen to our entire bodies. What I call those effects are unwanted complications of medicine, UCM, unwanted complications of medicine. You may also refer to them as adverse effects. I believe that we scientists who are putting forth to the public our reports on psychedelic medicines have a responsibility to every single one of you to tell you everything that we know about an adverse effect or an unwanted complication of these psychedelic medicines. We want to transform the landscape from a landscape of hiding information from the public to a landscape of telling everything to the public so you know exactly what it is you're dealing with and you can make your own informed decision as to whether the rewards that you're going to get for the particular medicine are worth the risks. So with that introduction, I now welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics my dear friend and colleague, Dr. Maria Vittoria Mangini. Well, good morning. 
I uh, heartily support what you're talking about. And I appreciate very much your having introduced this topic by mentioning Roland Griffiths, who I think recognized when he was told that he had a life-limiting illness and that he had a limited lifespan ahead of him to use some of the remaining time that he had to make sure that a kind of transparency about the potentials of psychedelics was available to the public based on the fact that he was the principal author of some of the very encouraging research studies that have reopened the conversation about psychedelics. And, you know, I, I appreciate very much what you said, but I think if I were to say it myself, I might say it a bit differently in that I don't think I would make so much emphasis about the negativity parts of this because, you know, I taught pharmacology for years. And so I have a whole like kind of pat thing about talking to people about this kind of stuff. And I think it's important for any prescriber and for most people who are members of the public who use the prescription medications to recognize that when a new medication goes through the approval process, it's being experienced by a very limited group of people. You know, typically a new like high blood pressure medication, for example, 1,500 or 2,000 people might have used it before it actually becomes something that's generally available. Any new pill, potion, procedure, once it gets out into the prescribability realm where people, lots of people, the number of people who are exposed to it increases radically as it's bound to do, effects that you don't see very often start to show up. And this is where I find that like the term side effects is really tricky because, you know, like I use a common medication like Benadryl, for example, which is pretty well known as an antihistamine. Yes. The, the effect that Benadryl as a, as an antihistamine of the type that it is, has of making people feel sleepy is sometimes yes. described as a side effect unless you happen to be taking the Benadryl because you want to go to sleep. And then, you know, so side effects, they don't have anything to do with the characteristics of drugs. They have to do with where you look. If you're not looking for a particular effect that comes with a medicine, you can't necessarily remove that possibility just by not looking for it. You know, those things all, they all come together. And I think a more general understanding of the fact that this is true for all drugs without especially singling out the terrible potential of psychedelics is um, a reasonable one for anybody talking normally about pharmacology. It's just the the thing that happens when when substances get into a larger population that has a wider variety of characteristics. You start to see things that wouldn't show up with a smaller population. So this is a predictable outcome. That's, that's exactly the uh, the tack that I take with regard to the conspiracy theorists uh, about the vaccines, which is, you know, when you give a hundred people a vaccine, you might have one person or two people who have a complication. But when you give hundreds of millions of people a vaccine, that tiny percentage adds up to a lot of people. So of course you can find a thousand people that have had problems with the vaccine because maybe five or 800 million or more, maybe over a billion have taken it. And so they bring forth the conspiracy people all the people who have had these negative effects, but not taking into account that the actual percentage may be tiny, but the absolute number is large. Well, even when you're looking at the percentage, you know, like I can do this most effectively with statistics about breast cancer, 
because that's a subject that I've really paid a lot of attention to. But I've seen in the recent, recently in the news, a lot of sort of excited information about cannabis increasing people's risks for heart attacks. We've, we've known that there was a heart attack risk associated with smoked cannabis for a long time. That's been known for at least 10 years. And I suspect, although I have not really examined that particular set of statistical information, that it's one of the things that is like the link between hormone replacement therapy and breast cancer. If you take estrogen, if you take postmenopausal estrogen for hormone replacement, you increase your risk of breast cancer. And how you describe that increase, you know, I think it was Mark Twain who said, there's lies, damned lies, and statistics. You can say, well, you know, if you take hormones after pregnancy, I mean, after menopause, it's going to increase your risk of getting breast cancer by a, 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 a significant percentage. I think it's about 16%. Or you can say, if you take hormones for hormone replacement after menopause, it's going to increase your risk of breast cancer from four in a hundred thousand to five in a hundred thousand. And those two things sound different. You know, I mean, they're representing the same findings. But it's a question of how you want to stack the deck. And I think that often happens. Exactly, because exactly because if you say it increased by 25% because it went from four to five, that's very alarming. But if you say it increased from four to five, that's like, are you kidding me? That's not even interesting. Even if you tr attempt transparency, even health professionals and lots of very otherwise well-informed and intelligent people don't kind of understand what is being discussed there. We're talking about the relative risk versus the absolute risk. And the relative yes. risk of something can increase measurably, noticeably, while leaving the absolute risk still very small. Yes. The important thing for our listeners and readers to know is they need to really drill down and not just accept what the gross overall descriptive terminology is being used. Because I think your example just there, Maria Vittoria, was excellent. Four to five in 100,000. Well, is, you know, uh, this kind of thing, know, though, it's, it's, uh, it's in, in, in a lot of ways, though, it's incumbent upon health professionals to be aware that this kind of stuff, I mean, I'm sorry, I'm retired from clinical practice now, but I'm accustomed to using describing things as a way of stacking the deck with patients. I can, another example that I would use is someone might come in to me and say, I have a cough. Whenever I have a cough, I get pneumonia. I want to start antibiotics. And, you know, there are certain things that I might use to assess whether I think somebody has pneumonia or has a likelihood of having pneumonia or is at a high risk for pneumonia. You know that we overuse antibiotics ridiculously in this country. I might want to suggest that someone who thinks they should start antibiotics right away maybe doesn't need them. Or I might want somebody who's really adverse to the idea of taking antibiotics to take them because I think there will be a lot of benefit and it will obviate some risk. And the way I present that has a lot to do with it. If I say, well, you know, I don't want to stand between you and your antibiotics and I will give you a contingent prescription, but I want you to wait a couple of days and see if you develop a fever or a cough that wakes you up at night or any of these kinds of other symptoms before you start the antibiotics. Because I'm afraid if you start them too soon, you'll be taking all the risks and you really won't be getting any of the benefit. Or to somebody else, I might say, well, you know, I know you think antibiotics are poison, but if this were 50 years ago, have you ever heard it? Pneumonia described as the old man's friend. 
because it carried people off because people would go down this route of not being able to clear their secretions from their lungs and they would basically die from the kind of infection that I think you have. And you have an opportunity to take this beneficial medicine. And I know that it's not risk-free, but the benefits you're going to get outweighs the risk that I think is there. And that's me stacking the deck, you know, like I'm, I'm trying to get the patient to agree with my understanding of what is likely to happen for them. And I think that there are not very many providers who are equipped to provide information like that for their patients, nor is there time to have those kinds of complex conversations with patients. In my own life, I had a situation where I was in congestive heart failure and the uh, medicine for it had a what for me was a pretty high percentage of risk with regard to doing damage to the kidney. And but it had a very high percentage of being effective fixing my heart situation. Uh, the medicine is called Entresto. And um barbitol and Voltaren is what makes up Entresto. And what my, the cardiologist said an interesting thing, which is right in line with what you're saying. She said, if it fixes your heart, maybe it's worth the risk to the kidney. That was what the what really came down to. Well, people and, take cancer chemotherapy. Such a high, uh, you know, I mean, like cancer chemotherapy, I, you forgive me, I'm not an expert in this either, but like my understanding is the idea is to almost kill the person with the idea that cancer is rapidly dividing cells. It's more vulnerable than most of the cells in the body. And you want to kill them and not quite kill the host. I mean, you don't do that unless there's a major risk involved. There's a risk benefit analysis there. And that's what I'm getting at when I say time that's is right. part of it. We don't have time to talk about this with our patients. Let's switch over now, Maria Victoria, <laughs> and talk about, let's talk about psychedelics. You've been involved as a scientist with psychedelics for a very long time. And you know what the topic is today. We want to talk about adverse effects. Now, many of us are aware of adverse effects that are immediately physical such as increased heart rate. We're aware of that with some of the psychedelics and what the parameters are. Increased blood pressure, we're aware of that. Sometimes increased anxiety, we're aware of that. And I could go on. However, you have been doing research on another area of psychedelic effects, negative psychedelic effects, if you will, adverse effects, which come after the psychedelic experience and during the phase and time thereafter. And I'd like you to take it right from the top or from the ground up and give us details on how you looked into that and what you found. Well, I haven't actually really been doing research in that area, but what I have been doing is the experience that I have with people's opportunities to experience unusual states of consciousness that are accessed through psychedelics have come to me largely through what Stan Groff would call unsupervised self-experimentation. I think the general gloss would be the non-medical use of psychedelics. Very different circumstances from giving people psychedelics for a purpose with a a, a therapeutic modality around them, you know, with a with a plan for certain kinds of introductory preparation and support during the session and an opportunity to integrate the effects of the session. That kind of research, which is the the methodology that's used in 
um, psychedelic assisted therapy that as it's being practiced right now is different from the kind of experience that I've been exposed to over the last 50 or so years with people who, you know, like took too much acid at the Grateful Dead show, basically. That, that's a different population. My uh, information doesn't actually come from any formalized research. It just comes from exposure to things like the experience of the people who managed rock medicine, for example, which um, did outreach and provided support services at a lot of different kinds of festival environments where people take drugs. And as you said earlier, you know, when a lot of people take drugs, some people are going to show the adverse effects of taking those drugs. I think one of the most sort of contemporary examples of the kind of thing that that you might be kind of wishing to talk about is this rather terrible story about this pilot who uh, was in some kind of a fugue state, I think, who tried to pull the fire extinguisher handles on the cockpit where he was riding as a guest because he was in some kind of dream state and he was trying to wake up and he imagined that that would make him wake up. I've been following that story since it appeared in the press maybe about two weeks ago when it happened. And I have watched the iteration of the story gradually come to emphasize the fact that a couple of days before this experience in which he did this terrible thing in a rather dreamlike state, he had taken some psilocybin mushrooms, something about which he was not an experienced person. And he had lost a couple of nights sleep. And he was very stressed in a particular kind of bereavement stress that had been ongoing for him at for a while, but he had had a particular exacerbation of his bereavement stress because of a memorial that he had been to. And all of that combined, he was not himself, and he was aware that he was not himself. But as that story is being told in the press, the role that the psychedelic mushrooms played in it is becoming more and more prominent. I subscribe to a, a, a little news magazine that's called The Week. It's a magazine where they excerpt stories that have been written by other publications, so you get a kind of general overview. And in their little two-paragraph summary of this particular news story, I noticed that the caption that they used for this story was bad trip. And this, unfortunately, has a real a level of familiarity for me because kind those kinds of stories were very common in the last century during the the prior episode of enthusiasm for psychedelics in this society, where a few very dramatic occurrences captured the attention of the news media, and um, they really changed what had been a very enthusiastically positive reception of the possibilities of psychedelics to something enthusiastically negative. And some of that has to do with the appearance of these unusual side effects as a broader um, or an unusual adverse effects as a broader uh, population gets access to these substances. And I have to say that does trouble me a little bit when I think about lifting all the controls because, uh, you know, I, I, I could go on about that. I, there are a couple of reasons why that troubles me. For one thing, like many people in my contemporary group, I'm, I'm kind of accustomed to things as they have been with a little bit less sort of, I think, imaginative flexibility about things as they will be, you know, like I don't manage the social media very well and stuff like that. That's kind of outside my my understanding. I think there must have been ancient Greeks sitting on the porch of the Parthenon in rocking chairs going, kids these days don't know the value of a drachma, you know? <laughs> I mean, so like I'm, <laughs> I, I'm a little worried because I'm accustomed to these substances having been 
contained either in a cultural envelope where there was a very specific understanding of what they were and what they could be used for, or in a regulatory envelope, sometimes with some very draconian outcomes, including prison, for having had access to this stuff. And, you know, it brings up controversies that have been, they've been, people have been trying to sort this stuff out for hundreds of years. I think I was talking to somebody about this last night. The question about whether access to these substances and the experiences to which they give access should be through some kind of moderated, facilitated format, as opposed to just letting people do as they wish. In some ways, I mean, there are many aspects to that, but one of the ones that I can identify is, isn't that exactly what the argument was in the Protestant Reformation? You know, like when people wanted to translate the Bible from Latin into the actual languages that people could speak and some people could read, a lot of what the problem was, was, well, if people could read the Bible on their own, they're going to make their own conclusions about what God's will is. And we want that to go through a moderator who's going to tell them what the right perspective is on all this kind of stuff. Yes. So this is a human problem. I mean, it's not a psychedelic problem. It's been around for a while. Yes. My, my own view is caveat emptor. Tell the public everything and let the buyer beware. Give them every piece of information that we possibly can about the risks, about the rewards. Put the risks in in terms that the average person can understand. I mean, the average person nowadays knows how to use a cell phone. They know how to use a computer. They're having to use cell phones and computers at work to drive a car, all kinds of uh, of, of aspects. And I think the average person knows not to eat rat poison. I think the average person knows not to inject themselves with heroin. The average person does not overdose with cocaine. And I don't think the average person is going to get themselves in trouble with psychedelics uh, and all of a sudden see an epidemic of that. I really oh, don't. Dr. Miller, I disagree with you. Good. Let's hear I it. I don't. I disagree with you because what about teenagers? You know, mostly couldn't find their way out of a paper bag with both hands where that kind um, of prudence I, is concerned. My answer to that is early education. If the teenagers are taught at an early enough age that rat poison will kill you, they won't drink rat poison. If, if they're taught that heroin can ruin your life and here are the reasons and they're given honest information, they will not get into shooting their veins with heroin. Will a certain small percentage? Yes. Will a certain small percentage always be not so small, always become alcoholic? Yes. Will a certain number of teenagers always get in trouble with alcohol and drugs? Yes. Will some of those same teenagers get in trouble with psychedelics? Yes. But we are talking about an overall population of 330 million people. And I think taking a paternalistic attitude towards this pe these people is a slippery slope towards tyranny and dictatorship. Because when do we stop telling them what's good for them? And well, when now, do we start? I have to back up a little bit here because there's some pieces that are part of my perspective about this that I didn't mention and they should be included in here. One of them is that a lot of the sort of um, resistance that young adults have to being told what to do is made worse by 
trying to manipulate them with anything less than the truth. And I think that's certainly true of your yes. contemporary cohort and my contemporary cohort, where we know we were we knew we were being told a fair number of lies about drugs. And so as a result, we didn't believe even the useful information that was offered to us about drugs. Um, yes. The the Linda Smith Foundation and the what later that which later became part of the Drug Policy Alliance published a whole educational curriculum that's just called that's called just say no just say k n o w that's about providing the exact information that you're talking about to young adults when they're at the stage where experimentation with substances that are available in the community is beginning for them so that they understand basically what the parameters are of the things that they're considering and those you know there there's been a lot of i'm sure political um opposition to the way in which that kind of information could be provided because there was, I mean, in my little community, there was a p- opposition to the Dr. Seuss book, The Lorax, because it talked about people who cut down trees, maybe not being the people you want to hang out with. The the thing that they say in the just say no literature is, we hope you don't decide to do this, but if you do, you need to have some information about it. That's a fully transparent point of view. But I think there are a lot of places where that kind of transparency is not available. And politically, it's really too much of a hot potato for it to be available. I think that statement is a statement I can stand behind. We are suggesting that you do not use these in your teenage years. We are advising against it. But if you do, we want you to have every drop of information available so you know how you're putting yourself at risk. I can. That sounds like a, a sane way of dealing with our fellow beings and with what? educating the young. By the way, by the way, folks, what Maria Vittoria is reminding us, the Drug Policy Alliance, DPA, Drug Policy Alliance, and look for their program, Just Say No, K-N-O-W. Those of you who are parents out there, parents of teenagers, you want to take a look at that. Yeah, thanks for that reminder, Maria. We can improve on public education. We can. We can improve on the support that's available for people, uh, their interest in and pursuit of these kinds of experiences. I don't want to claim for myself any kind of expertise about the way in which the traditional cultural containers in which these substances are part of an ongoing heritage of community practice, superficially looking sort of comparatively from outside those communities, it seems like the the appreciation that these are not toys, they're not playthings, and that there is a correct, uh, appropriate, or a reverential, respectful way of approaching these experiences is pretty common in places where they're used as a part of an ongoing cultural commitment to the experiences that are available here. And we don't really have that to fall back on in this culture very much. The appreciation for the psychoactivity of LSD is only really a few decades old, not even yet approaching 100 years. And so there's a certain amount of information that accumulated in the underground that, that I think could be mined for some appreciation of how these substances could be used. I know that I'm part of a of, of a collective environment, a group of people that have been trying to form a family-like living situation together since the 1960s. We used to have a sign on the wall of our kitchen that made a list of the things that were considered to be staple foods because those staple foods could be bought out of a certain part of our food budget. 
And that the way that that sign was developed was we had an all night meeting in which we were discussing whether pickles should be on that list. I mean, it took a lot of development to develop the ways in which the community to which I belong has decided to make its life together work. Those kinds of things accumulate in a, in a cultural environment where people practice together over a long period of time. But at least in our collective, we had very few people of our parental generation who had any information to offer us about any of this stuff. And really, almost none of them who had any feeling that any of it was positive at all. And if you look at that where I'm, you know, here I am, blue-eyed Italian-American descent, westernized, privileged, educated person, for the cultural community to which I belong and from which I come, the best statistics about how that get pass- gets passed on in families is, are, are ones that have been collected about alcohol. And the risk that people are going to develop a problematic relationship to alcohol is J-shaped. It's true that if you have family members who have alcohol substance use problems, you have a likelihood of developing those problems yourself, That's greater than the average population. But it's also true that if you come from a teetotal environment where there's no use of alcohol, your risk of developing problems with alcohol is also greater. And it's because you don't get the social learning about how alcohol should be appropriately used. And you know, if you if you're four years old and you go to a family wedding and one of your elderly aunts gets drunk and throws up in front of everybody else, you get everybody's, oh my, that really wasn't the right way to do that, even if you're only a little thing. And you start learning about what's the appropriate way to relate to that substance and to relate to it in a social environment. And that's a big gap that we really don't have in this cultural context. Yes. Our producer of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, Charlie Dice, told me that you're calling some aspect of your work by the word matrix. Oh, it's not my word. I'll tell you about that. There is, There was a woman researcher. Her name was Betty Grover Eisner. She was one of the few experimental I scientists. Remember. You know Betty? We, uh, I Betty, remember Betty Eisner. Yeah. Betty, I knew Betty around the turn of the 21st century, and I actually traveled with her a little bit. I had many conversations with her, and I've had a really, I had a really extensive correspondence with her. I'm familiar with her ideas. She was an associate of Sidney Cohen. It was she who provided the first psychedelic experience, for example, for Bill Wilson, who was the founder of Alcoholics Anonymous and who t- had a very positive experience with LSD. Um, but yes. her her experimental work came to grief for a lot of reasons that I won't get into here. Um, and as a result, she left that work of experimentation with psychedelics, but she continued to be a theorist about what had happened there and what the usefulness of the information that was acquired during the period of extensive experimentation was. And in 1998, she wrote a paper in which she brought up the common understanding of how psychedelic experiences are shaped by several factors. And I believe it was Norman Zinberg who first isolated these three factors in his own writing. And the factors were drug set and setting. So what did you take and how much of it? In what physical circumstances did you take it? And what what perspective did you bring to the experience about what you thought was going to happen and how you felt about it when it did happen? Those things would determine the character of the experience that you had. And Betty Eisner in 1998 wrote a paper in which she suggested there was in fact a fourth element. And the fourth element was what she called matrix. 
And Matrix was the Matrix is the social environment from which someone comes to the experience and to which they then have to return after the experience is completed. And I have talked about this a fair amount recently because the matrix is what's changing. People can still take 250 micrograms of LSD or 100 micrograms of LSD. They can still take it in a protected environment in which it's there's music playing and it's quiet or it's a beautiful natural circumstance or where the police come crashing down and, and, and unpleasantly affect the character of your experience. That's the setting. And they can take LSD thinking they're going to see God or that they're going to lose their minds. You know, that's the set. All those things can be relatively replicated, even from experiences that were had decades ago. But the matrix has changed radically. And I would say the matrix has changed since yesterday. And it's changed in the last couple of weeks. And it's changed for sure in the last 10 years. And since I started writing my doctoral research in the 1990s, it's changed radically. So matrix is very important. You know, uh, there's a sociologist from the um, University of Chicago whose name is Stephen Becker, who wrote a really wonderful and pivotal book called The Outsider, in which he talked about how people undertake a deviant career. Like, he was an interesting guy. He was a graduate student who played in a jazz combo with a bunch of Black musicians, and he was the only white guy. And his musical cohort all were pot smokers. And he ended up writing his sociology dissertation, I think, about how somebody from a culture that didn't use marijuana and didn't know anything about it could become a pot smoker and what was necessary for them. And they had to have some place to acquire the pot. And they had to have people who thought uh, pot was a good thing to do it with. And they had to not have like a, a spouse or parents or an employer who furiously disapproved and discouraged them all the time. And, you know, things like that. These were the components that needed to be in place in order for somebody to, to espouse what he called a deviant career. And the ability to stand up in public and say, yes, I used LSD or, you know, psilocybin mushrooms or whatever it was that you're talking about, and it did me a world of good, is a really dramatically changed factor right now in terms of the matrix in which people are doing that. So I think it's much more possible for people to get community support to help them understand and integrate and um, accumulate and use the insights that may have come to them through psychedelics than it was even a few months ago. But all of that is rapidly yes. evolving. And what happens when the person has a matrix that is negative towards what they've done? Or what happens, such as some of the people in my book, Psychedelic Wisdom, who were professors at famous universities, and they were doing sub rosa psychedelic self-experimentation, and they couldn't tell anybody in the world for fear of getting fired, losing their position, et cetera, et cetera. That's a very a different experience than having the experience of support, of integration sessions, and of having things done appropriately in order to get the most out of the gold mine that you went into during the psychedelic experience. I well, refer I wonder, to the psychedelic. Are, are you talking about Chris Beige specifically? Are I'm not talking, talking about any, any, anybody in specific, although I thought of a few people. I'm not going to use uh, specific names at this time, but there several professors told me of that experience. And I can tell you from my own experience 
Maria Vittoria, that when I was teaching at the University of Michigan, my early in the 1960s, there was absolutely no one in the world except my closest friends that I could tell that I was doing self-experimentation with the very materials that Leary and Alpert had just gotten fired from Harvard for using. Well, that was a while even before I was working on my doctoral dissertation at the University of California, San Francisco. But I can assure you that in the 1990s, when I started doing that research, I would be sitting in the library at a computer terminal looking at basically an article that said LSD is good for you and a little concerned about who might be looking over my shoulder, that it might cause me to get into trouble. But there are a couple of different kinds of potential outcomes for that. One of them is the one that unfortunately befell Carl Rook, and which I think is now sort of beginning to be redressed as people are becoming more open-minded and less peculiar about this, which is that, you know, he undertook to write about Eleusis and the potential that the Eleusinian mystery involves some ingestion of some psychoactive substance, along with Gordon Wasson. And I believe at the time that the, the Road to Eleusis came out, he was a tenured professor at Princeton, and they kind of put him in the basement and left him there for a few decades because his ideas were so uh, eccentric that they really couldn't be treated respectfully in the yes. academic environment of that time. On the other hand, and I, I am referring specifically to Chris Beche, um, Chris Beche was a, you know, a perfectly ordinary graduate with a PhD in religion who took a job at a not very progressive um, upper uh, higher education institution of higher education in which he was a perfectly ordinary professor of religion. And he, I believe at one time was the chair of the department of religion. And he did all the things that people do in an academic environment, published some papers, went to a lot of meetings, was on people's doctoral committees while he was doing two other things without talking to his department about them. One of them was that he became a very serious student of Tibetan Buddhism. And he did a lot of extremely intense Tibetan Buddhist mind training. And the other one was he pursued his interest in psychoactive substances, specifically, I think, with LSD. And he took, I forget if it's 79 or 74, high-dose LSD sessions over a period of several decades. And 93. He, is it 93? A lot. He told me 93, and his wife was a clinical psychologist at the time, and she sat with him for every one. But what's important to add to that story is that every one of those experiences were with a minimum of 500 micrograms, which is a very large amount of LSD. That, mu that much LSD, I think, as you will know, takes you past the ego directly into what you might call his consci cosmic consciousness. He, he, didn't, he didn't get much any time dealing with everyday activities, communication skills, introspection. He went almost from regular consciousness into transcendence. Well, I want to be sure since I was that? the person. Yes, oh yes. And because I was the person who brought him up by name, I want to be sure that in telling about his experience, that certain things get included in the telling about that experience. And and what I specifically would personally like to focus on is the, the interconnection between his Buddhist mind training and the capacity to undertake that kind of in-depth exploration. He was exceptionally well prepared with some very specific tools to do things like 
bring back the content of those extremely very high dose experiences. Not everybody is set up in that way to be able to benefit from that kind of an experience in the way that he has done. And I think he's created the potential for other people to benefit from that experience, not by replicating it, but because he was able to use his specific training to record some of the things that occurred for him in that dimension that he was able to enter and bring them back to be reported to us so that we don't it's you know it's like an explorer who goes into an uncharted territory and comes back with a a map you know you don't necessarily have to go float down the same river that they floated down in order to know that what they reported that they saw there was true yes i don't think anybody I, i don't think he and i certainly wouldn't encourage anybody to try to replicate his experience uh-huh. except with the kind of specific training that he brought to that experience. Yes. yes. So can you tell us more about the post-psychedelic experience with regard to what you, the, Eisner called the matrix? Do you have any more information on that with regard to potential adverse effects? I'm primarily at this stage in my scholarly life. I'm primarily an historian, not a researcher, and certainly not a therapist. But what I do believe is true is that when the experiences that psychedelics can give access to started to become commonplace in the last century, when the understanding about them was quite a bit less well-developed than it is right now, that people often didn't have a large number of potential explanations for the change in consciousness that they were experiencing. If you went out of your mind, that was not a good thing. You know, there were no like positive interpretations for being out of your mind that really um, were commonplace at that time. Whereas I think that um, there's a, a sort of broader perspective about the thing that William James talked about so poetically and eloquently in saying that there are other forms of consciousness that are separated from our usual consciousness by a thin veil. You know, I think there is quite a bit more understanding of the truth of those st- that perspective than there was when people experimented with these substances in the last century. And as a result, people were kind of stuck with the idea that they might be permanently insane. You know, like you asked me about, you referred to my research with, with people in a, a unusual states, which is actually, I, I was quick to disclaim that because what my experience has been is people kind of showing up at the freakout tent in the, in unusual states. There's a relatively small toolkit that has been used historically in the context with which I am most familiar to help people in that situation. And it has been just putting them in mind of a few home truths that people who have functioned as support people in those situations believe and can transmit in an empathic and genuine way. One of which is, you know, like you're, you're, you took a strongly psychoactive drug. It's going to wear off. A lot of people here have done that, have done it, done that same thing. Yes. A lot of the people who are here supporting you in your desire to return to your normal consciousness with your physical intactness in place, they've all done it too. They all survived experiences like this. And so will you, you know, like Kalmate. That's a, a little a dose powerful, of reality. Mm-hmm, that's a powerful part of the toolkit. Yes. Very much so. What might you add before we end this lovely interview? I'd like you to take a pause and just go inside and see 
like if you were driving away right now after the interview, is there something you might think to yourself, gee, I wish I would have said that while I was still there? Well, I'm very interested in enchantment. I I had the experience recently of having a couple of people whom I quite respect and like uh, suggest to me that I listen to a podcast which talks about animism. And it's like an hour-long explanation of how animism has sort of showed up throughout human history. And I believe the podcast is titled something like Animism is Normative Consciousness. And the the speaker is talking about how our ancestors have lived with the idea that rocks and trees and mountains and streams had beingness and presence, and that there was a, a live environment around us that we were always in interaction with. And one of the examples that's part of this experience that's being recounted in this podcast is if you see a mountain and what you think the mountain is, is a lump of ore that you should be able to mine and extract some value from versus if you see a mountain and it's the place where the clouds form that bring the rain that falls on your crops that make it possible for you to eat, your relationship to the mountain is a bit different. Yeah, And that I really believe is something that paying more attention to that kind of animistic as a descriptor, because I lack a better vocabulary for it, enchantment of the world in which we're experiencing right now would be a good thing. Do you, do you know Annie Sprinkle? Mm-hmm. You know, she's developing this theory mm-hmm. of echo-sexuality. Mm-hmm. I've interviewed her on that. Mm-hmm. And that's related to what you're talking about, because she's talking about to our environment, making love to the air, loving the water, loving that mountain for bringing us the clouds, and being in that state of togetherness so that we really feel that we're a part of this thing rather than living on this thing. Well, you know, that's a really exactly. good place for us to bring this to a close, because well, as, as I often do, I want to reflect on our mutual history and your history as a benefactor of the organization, the Women's Visionary Council, that I'm a part of. When we did our first Women's Visionary Congress, the meeting that we hold every year at the Wilbur Hot Springs, Annie was one of the speakers, the very first one. Yes, that's right. That's where I first met Annie, and we've been in touch ever since. Actually, she has a chapter in my uh, my latest book, which just came out this week, called Freeing Sexuality. And I'm I'm really proud to have her. I dedicated, I forgot, I mentioned it to you, Maria Vittoria. I dedicated the book to Annie Sprinkle and Marco St. James, uh, two of two of my, my great heroes in this world, or should I say heroine. <laughs> so thank you so much for being back together with us on, on Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. It's, it's always educational and, and, and heartwarming to be with you. Well, I appreciate and very much you spending you all. all this time with me. Oh, oh I, I look forward to it. By the way, how often do you go up to the community in Laytonville? Well, not as often as I'd like, because, you know, we had a house fire uh, almost exactly a year ago. And yes. our our communal cooking, eating and meeting place is just beginning to get reconstructed. I've been a lot um, kind of stapled to my desk, talking to a variety of insurance agents and kind of trying to help the community get back to where right. we're going to reconstruct. So I was just there. We just had a, a family meeting just a couple of days ago. 
but I probably won't be back for a couple of weeks now. Well, if you're ever going and it's a convenient time for me to join you and meet some of the people, you know, I'm not far away. Give me a jingle and I'll drive up. Oh, and, what a lovely and, uh, I would thought. Love to, I would love to do that. I would really love to do that. Well, you know, we had a really wonderful party at the end of September. We had a um, a kind of barn raising uh, rent party to help bring in some of the money that it's going to cost us to rebuild and also to put in the bridge that we just put in that gives access to our camp facility. And uh, we're definitely going to do that again, almost okay. certainly in September, um, very likely again in June. And when we do that, you should come because it's a, it was really please, fun. Please, please put me on your tickler file. I'd love to do it. Sure. Thank you. Great. Again. And, th all right. and thank you all. Yes. And thank you all, gentle listeners, for being with us on today's broadcast of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I remind you, every Tuesday morning at 9 o'clock, we have a new program. Plus, in line with our philosophy, all of our programs are archived and open source. That means free for all of you. You can listen anytime you want. MindBodyHealthPolitics.org. So until next time, this is Dr. Richard Lewis Miller reminding you that good health is worth fighting for and it's essential for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness.